Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. star in Bullet. After eight years in prison, he's back on the streets. I robbed the old man's liquor store. All Bullet did was drive the car. Welcome to the free world, man. And a bitter rivalry. He just robbed two of my best customers. <laughs> Stuck my man Flocko in the eye. Ah! I took off with my product and my cash. Is set to reignite. Bullet is mine. Tank was coming after you. I think we got a dead one over here. He just blew his elbows. Why don't you pound the flesh? Why don't you do it yourself? I've been waiting for a long time. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Father Malone. Oh, my drawing hand. Also back in the booth is Mr. Kustachio. Since when do you become my proctologist or something? Our first month of requests wraps up with one from our mutual friend, Andy Hendrickson. It's Julian Temple's Bullet from 1996. The film stars Mickey Rourke as the titular Bullet, or Butch, an ex-con back on the streets and reunited with his dysfunctional family. Or is this movie really about Bullet's brother Ruby, played by Adrian Brody? We'll be discussing that as well as spoilers as we go along. So if you don't want anything ruined, turn off the podcast, come back after you've seen the movie. It's available on archive.org. We will still be here. So, Father Malone, I have a feeling that this might have been a first-time watch for you and Chris. Shockingly correct, Mike. 
This Wait is- a second. Whoa, <laughs> now. now. Holy, Chris, you big bullet holy fan? Holy cow. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, first time watch here, baby. Somehow avoided this movie all these years. No, not somehow. I definitely avoided this movie for all these years. Mid-90s, Mickey Rourke is not my favorite. And this type of straight-to-video thing just makes me sad when I know he's in it. So, yes, I'm glad I have watched it, you know, as a completist. But it's staggering to me that Julian Temple directed this movie. I'll just say that. I concur. And, yeah, we'll definitely get into that. Chris, what were your thoughts on watching Bullet for the first time? Or... Had you already seen this? Do you have like a tattoo of Tank on your chest that I'm unaware of? I have a Tupac Shakur tattoo, actually. He's the best part of this movie. I'm kidding. He's barely even in this movie. Having done all these Mickey Rourke movies over on the Culture Cast, I think I can say at this point, like Mickey Rourke is a weird actor. And this movie is just another weird-ass movie that exists that Mickey Rourke's just kind of being weird in. Like, I... Help me out here. I'm not going to say what is the appeal of Mickey Rourke, but is this supposed to be serious? Because it it just is like borderline. Like he's it's almost like a Tommy Wiseau thing. I don't know how else to describe it. He's so aloof and strange. I mean, the proctologist line feels like it's straight out of the room. Like, I think you're a latent homosexual. Like, what the, what the fuck? Like, what the fuck is this? I get that they're having this whole weird familial conversation but this is such a weird mishmash of things that doesn't really work and oh by the way ted levine's the best part of the movie so ha there you go that's not shocking to anybody ted levine's always the best part of the movie that he's in it's shocking because he's really just like his character makes the least amount of sense of all of the characters in the movie there are points in this movie where it looks like they just shot cutaways of Ted Levine and then entered them in later on. Like when he is watching a fight, they just cut to him behind a fence and you're like, oh, and he's here as well. Why is he here? He doesn't like his brothers. Why is he following them around? And there's a few times where we just get these weird inserts of Ted Levine. I'm not complaining because I love Ted Levine, but whoa. It didn't make any sense other than them trying to make the ending make sense. That's exactly what it is, because if he's not at that fight, then he isn't going to repeat Tank's line back to him. I doubt there were some reshoots on this film, but yeah, it seems like a lot of pickup stuff just just to make things make sense. And it doesn't. Ultimately, Chris, to your point, I'm not blaming Mickey Rourke for this movie other than he's as a writer, as one of the co-writers. It's perhaps the worst screenplay of the 1990s, and that is saying something. Well, it's also based off of Bruce Rubenstein's life. Yeah, 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 yeah. Everyone was so hardcore. Everyone was from the streets in the 90s. This is the prime time for that. Everyone's doing heroin, man. We're all being real. We're being really real here. And you know what? I think Rourke's performance is actually really good here. I believe that that guy exists in the world. It's just that why would anyone want to fucking spend 90 minutes with him? I ask myself that every time we've seen a Mickey Rourke thing. Angel Heart, you ask yourself that? Other than that one, other than that one, like Barfly, come on. His appeal is so strange to me, is all I'm saying. It's it's very hard to pin down what his appeal is. He made a lot of movies that I liked a lot, but when they talk about all of his wasted potential in this movie, I just kept thinking, are they talking about Bullet or are they talking about Mickey Rourke? 
that one scene is a little too on the nose when Suzanne Shepard's like, you wasted it. Didn't you know you could have been something and you fucked up? And it's like, oh, what the fuck is this? Like some sort of, he is a writer on the script. So maybe he was just like, well, you know, everybody's saying it. Mine as well, you know. Michael Jackson, so many other people have just turned into it and you take the piss out of it. I don't know if that's what it was, though. He seems to be an actor who has spent his entire career beating himself up. So it would seem stand to reason that in 1996, after Marlboro Man, which he acknowledges Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man is his lowest point and like he felt broken after that's when he got back into boxing. So this is like one of these movies kind of while he's boxing he hasn't gone too far he hasn't smashed his face too quite uh to to the point where he'll get here though he gets the shit kicked out of him in this movie and wears all these prosthesis later on and i was like oh man you don't look nearly as ugly as you look now he could not have predicted where his face was going he, he just thought oh we'll just have some bruises on here because that's what i usually have when i when i'm concussed Though there, there's a couple shots in here where he looks like his character from Sin City. 100%, yeah. Yes, thank you. It's towards the, it's really towards the end of the movie once he's, once the movie decides, hey, it's time to wrap it up. <laughs> which, is, which is, you know, I mean, again, one of the, one of the things that this movie has that it's just like the third act to just fail apart, but I'm not sure the first and second act really brought it, but he looks he looks like Marv from Sin City at the end, like straight. I mean, his one eye is completely closed by the time Tupac shows up for the third time in the movie to do something. His right eye is fucked up and Temple keeps shooting him from the right. And I'm like, shoot him from the left so that way you can actually see the working eye because he's emoting with his eyes. And instead, I'm I'm missing his acting when he's got the one eye completely covered and you just see like a sliver of nose in his mouth, but I'm not seeing the look in his eyes. But this is putting me into a very difficult situation, this particular episode, because it's one, it's a request. Thank you, Andy Hendrickson, for being a loyal Patreon donor. And also, we've got an interview with the writer of the film, Bruce Rubenstein, later on in this episode. Bruce was super generous with his time in... Yet, I have a hard time with this movie, and I think he knows, and he definitely agrees that the direction isn't there. I don't know if it's all on the direction. I don't think that it is, because there's a lot of times where I'm watching this movie. Remember, audience, this is 1996 that this is coming out. This is two years post-Pulp Fiction, and this is feeling very much, and I don't understand how Temple is doing this. This feels like this is my first movie I made post-college, and I was a huge Tarantino fan. This is like sub, 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 Truth or Consequences, New Mexico, sub, The Usual Suspects, sub, Love and a 45. I mean, sub all of these movies. I'm surprised that when they shoot guns that they aren't holding them sideways. It's the only thing missing from the 90s, 90s-ness of it. And yeah, the just the bottom of the barrel of all of those movies. The impact Tarantino had when Pulp Fiction, it was unbelievable, whether or not you like him. But it seemed in the independent world in particular, anytime anyone just said the words gun or heroin or crime or whatever, they're like, yeah, go ahead and do it, because that's all we're about. And this was just like, appreciate that the guy was so generous with his time, but this script is really, really bad. There is no plot here at all, right? There's a story going on, but 
it's just meandering and dumb and all these characters are just behaving badly because they think that's somehow edgy like that's what it felt like it felt like this is the edgiest thing you're gonna see ever and no it's just the lamest kind of reminds me of if someone tried to cast mickey rourke as james gandolfini in the sopranos it has that feel to it it really does if you if you sit with it it has like that weird familial thing that the Sopranos really mines in the first season. And this whole movie is just, it's really only about his family. I mean, we've, we've kind of alluded to it. The whole Tupac thing, it feels so tacked on that the, to put Tupac on the poster is just to capitalize on the fact that Tupac is fucking massive in 1996. But it, it almost, it's about Mickey Rourke and his family, which reminds me so much of those early seasons of the Sopranos when Tony is talking to his mom all the time and then you have Suzanne Shepard in this movie who plays, uh, I guess she would be Tony Soprano's mother-in-law in The Sopranos. And she's doing kind of this, you know, worried mother thing in this movie. And she kind of, and she's pretty even keeled here compared to the character she plays in The Sopranos. But it does feel just like a lesser version of that. Because again, the problem is Mickey Rourke's character of Bullet is not charismatic the way Tony Soprano is at all. Like Tony Soprano is still a charismatic character. Bullet's just off-putting, but intentionally off-putting. What kind of people are these? He's not Jewish. Do you know how these people live? You don't know where he is. I kept waiting for uh, for her to say that about Lester or somebody. <laughs> she plays Italian and Jewish very well because in The Sopranos she's Italian, and yeah, Goodfellas she's Jewish, right? Yeah, just the good half. Lainey Kazan is every ethnicity. Like, you just stick her in anywhere. She could have been in this as the mom, or the Italian guy's mom, or the Irish guy's mom. Oh, boy. Hey, uh, we haven't spoken anything about the fantastic work Donnie Wahlberg was doing as Big Balls. I knew that was him, though. I was watching. I was just like, is that Donnie Wahlberg? And there's that other guy, Patty, who plays such a big role at the end. I was like, was he in this movie before? Like, there are a lot of times, like, even... So eventually we'll get to talking about the movie, but the the white kids at the beginning that he gets out of prison and I'm not sure if he's getting on a fish kill or sing, 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 sing's too close for it to be sing, sing. So I think it's fish kill because they go past the marker that says 68 miles to New York and man, oh man, we were talking Brooklyn big time in this movie there. They talk Brooklyn in this, they are all about the ethnicities and all these things. And he gets out of prison. He sees he's talking with Lester, his best buddy and Ruby, his brother played by Adrian Brody. And they're like, Oh yeah, these two kids that keep coming around here and buying this heroin. And so they follow them up to the roof. Sorry. They follow them into this building, take them up to the roof of the building, take off their clothes, threaten to rape these guys it becomes this big thing. These kids, they don't have any clothes. They're going around knocking on doors, yada, yada. And I'm like, these fucking kids better come back. Uh, otherwise, this is such a wasted scene. And they do come back and they threaten his life. And then they just leave again. Two minutes before the end of the movie. Now there's five of us and we have a knife. Oh, it's the exact same scene again. <laughs> what could you do in a movie in the first 10 minutes as Mickey Rourke stab a guy in the fucking eye? There's that whole eye trauma Here's your hero, folks. <laughs> I was like, wait, wait a second. Does Bullet not have a? Does he not have a parole officer? 
He doesn't have a lot of things like a fucking throttle on his ability to exist within the real world. Like everything he does is just so abrasive constantly. He can't get along with anybody. It's like this is a character who just he walks into a room and everybody just goes, oh, my fucking God, it's this fucking guy again. Well, his little brother, Ruby, seems to really like him. His pal, Lester, a latent homosexual, seems to really like him, which comes to nothing, that whole thing. They, they have a scene to, like, course correct that with him fucking two girls at once. Like, just in case you thought I was a homosexual, I am not, audience. That's why I said the room. Cross-cutting the fucking with all of these, like, gangster types coming, wannabe gangsters coming to get Bullet. And we're cross-cutting with the guy fucking these two women. And I keep hearing this, like, noise in that scene. And I'm like, did they turn the gas on? Is there going to be an explosion in this scene? I'm not sure what's happening. It's called They Picked the Most Obnoxious Song to Have in the Club, which is, I like to move it, move it. Almost as good as the right said Fred earlier, which I guess is a, a gay signifier. So count me as queer because I love that song. Who the hell don't? That's why I said it reminded me a little bit of The Room, because all of a sudden there's just these like, like vestigial plot lines that go nowhere. Like, oh, he, you're, you're going to be sucking all these black dicks in prison. Like, where are you getting this information from, dude? Like, chill out, Mickey Rourke. Like, your your armchair psychology is, again, that's why I said kind of reminds me of The Sopranos because there's some of that in The Sopranos, but it's actually done well. <laughs> well, you're bringing up the room in the scene that I was just talking about on the roof is totally when Denny's getting roughed up by the drug dealer. That's, again, kind of what I was saying. Like, there's just some stuff that reminds me of the room unintentionally. And Mickey Rourke, kind of looking again like with the prosthetics he looks tommy wiseau-esque i mean mickey rourke with short hair i mean we're gonna be talking about marlboro man and harley davidson or whichever combination is the correct one to say it i like mickey rourke with that really short hair i think he looks good with really short hair i agree though he covers it up with that stupid hat through almost all that he looks like Mushmouth from the cosby kids as if the character isn't off-putting enough, he just kind of hides as well. And he wrote this movie. Why didn't he just write it about the little brother and have his character show up and be this malevolent force? Like, you're right, Chris. This is a movie about that family. And every time they're around the family, I, I kind of like it. In fact, the scene between Bullet and his mom where he's like, you know, telling her how much he loves her. Like, I thought that was a great scene. It's the the only sort of true scene in the movie. It, there's that whole running thread of Lewis being the the Vietnam veteran, and I'm sorry to say it, the crazy Vietnam veteran, the stereotype that we had for veterans for a long time, just playing right into that. And apparently he's got the whole house wired for sound. But at the same time, that comes to naught, because at one point he's like, oh, hey, and bullet, and he starts quoting pretty much what he said to... Lester, what Bullet said to Lester, and it's like, yeah, okay, he can hear everything. We we've seen like shots of him, and we have little microphone or little speakers and stuff coming out. I'm like, okay, well, when is that going to come back? How about this stun gun slash taser that he is begging his mother for, throwing this little childish fit that never comes back either. How about the training these young men to be killers sequence? This army thing about some, or he's got some project going on up there. 
what is that project? This is why the Ted Levine character is the best character in the movie, because he just left all these unanswered questions that were so intriguing to begin with. And how can it not be given that everyone else is a dullard? If you just sit and think about it, it doesn't even make any sense. Like none of what he adds to the movie makes a whole lot of sense in terms of like other than, again, he plays the Mark Wahlberg character in The Departed where he just shows up in the last 10 seconds of the movie and Deus Ex fixes everything and we go, okay, it's fine, I guess. The Mark Wahlberg. We've got Donnie. Yeah, but Mark Wahlberg in The Departed is the same thing where he just shows up and it's like, okay, well, all right, that's the end of the movie then, sure. Yeah, but at least you were expecting that character to do that and everything else he did was part of the plot. It wasn't just, now, let's go upstairs and see what what's his name's up to. Let's do that. Being insane. We'll have Lewis do a Tom Cruise from Mission Impossible and just slide down that rope and let Tupac's throat. Spoilers, glad I said that. When you look at the trajectory of Rourke at this point, like you mentioned, Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man was 91. We talked about him a lot when we covered White Sands a few years ago, which I really like. You get this movie called FTW, which is also known as The Last Ride, not to be confused with The Last Outlaw, which was his previous film. And FTW is almost like this stepping stone for him because one, he plays a next con and two, it's all about rodeo, which White Sands is also about. And that movie also has John Enos, the third, who must have been a big old pal. That's the guy that plays Lester in this, who... Again, what a wasted character. He just he just is there for almost the entire movie. He just comes in, starts looking at himself in the mirror. He's such a one-note character. Like everyone. It's wasted potential here because there's some good performers on display doing some interesting things. Not all of them are great. Oh, my God. Every minor character seems to be like a buddy or a friend or a boxing aficionado. Just... <laughs> or uh, Peter also, Dinklage. Peter Dinklage, best actor in the movie, and he's just in there for one thirty-second scene, hanging out at the hellhole, which is super interesting. I'm like, oh, please tell me more about the hellhole. Show me more of the inside of this. That'd be great. But no, we have to do heroin so we can get back to the telecine goddamn awful visual effect of the mirrored warping in and out, sort of point the heroin addict's point of view. How long has that finally gone away where we try to visualize a drug trip by by making everything look a little bit odd and skewed? I hope so. I wish I could say that it has, but I think that doing drugs in movies has kind of gone away quite a bit. Julian Temple had no right to make this movie and he should have done it so much better. I mean, I've seen Earth Girls Are Easy multiple times. Much better movie. Really put together very well. His music videos, very put together very well. This movie, like I said, it just feels so amateur hour. Earth Girls Are Easy is great. I think Father Malone, you, Heather, and I covered that on my show a couple years ago. I mean, again, if they had just focused on the stuff with Nicky Rourke and his family, I think there's actually a movie there. And again, Bruce Rubenstein, if, if this is based off of his life, which he, I mean, he talks about in the behind the scenes stuff, then... I don't think he was getting into fights with one-eyed Tupac Shakur or his analog in Brooklyn. What this movie wants to be about, really, is the older brother is a fuck-up and he's influencing his good younger brother and taking him down a dark path. Just tell that story. We're all 
Lord, all of these actors can tell that story and to move us instead of like just engaging in all of the bullshit 90s shoot 'em up nonsense that they thought made their movie better. Or try and get it made like as a, as a serious film and couldn't. They were like, oh, nope, we got to drug it up. I doubt that. On the action in the movie, the action scenes are prolonged nonsense. And when they have these shootout in this diner four feet from one another and they're missing with Uzis, it's just not the most kinetically directed scene either. Like Julian says many things, but evidently action director is not one of them. Yeah, it's it's and you look, you look, the climax of the movie is essentially similar where it's just like one character standing with another character pointing a gun at him. It is nothing. There's one scene that's kind of actiony and that's the, the kind of the bare knuckle boxing, which is fine. But again, like knowing what we know about Mickey Rourke's actual life, it feels just kind of strange. He's like, hey, I want to have a bare knuckle boxing part in this movie. They're like, all right, Mickey Rourke, music supervisor and written by and main actor in this movie. Mickey Rourke must really like Barry White. I love Barry White. I grew up on Barry White music. And by the end of this movie, I was just like, you got to be fucking kidding me. You're playing Barry White again. And it's only like two songs that they just keep going back to, if that. It's the, uh, that's the heroin music. When he's doing heroin, it's Barry White for whatever reason. That's what I think of when I think of heroin is Barry White. And a lot of really poor hip hop, like, you know, just Randall Poster, I think, was the music supervisor in this movie. And he ended up like he's on all, all of Wes Anderson's movies these days, supervising that that music. So humble beginnings, let's say. And I also feel that this is a little bit of a prequel to Iron Man 2. But instead of a Boyd in the prison, he has his rat, Tony Curtis, which I was so glad that Tony is the one that really gets the last laugh in this movie. Just like The Departed with the rat walking around at the end. No, it's I- Anton's rat, Chekhov's rat. <laughs> if you you better pay it off in the final one. Yeah, just like those white boys. It's like, what? Really? I, I like the idea that the movie that has its setup that Tupac is a character who rides in a limousine, constantly protected by people constantly has bodyguards with him there's no way he couldn't find more bodyguards and yet the movie just like clumsily stumbles into the final couple scenes it's just i don't understand it really feels like three movies two movies maybe even three i don't know i think if you took the stuff with tupac out i mean yeah it's less than an hour but it could be like a pilot for a tv show like you know like and i would have watched that that could have been interesting you know like a jewish crime family sure why not the scenes with the family remind me a lot of dinner scenes from Saturday Night Fever. The sons can't do anything right by the dad, except for the one son who's the good son. But then you have this dinner scene, and Adrian Birdie is more fucked up than anybody else in here, where he's just so high on heroin and basically making fun of his dad. I'm like, you're not going to say anything to this son? Like, he does a little bit, but not nearly as much as Bullet, where he's just like, You fucked up all those baseball scholarships, you weak. He just makes fun of Adrian Brody calling him Salvatore Dali, which is ironic because he plays Salvador Dali in, what, Midnight in Paris, right? That's not the porn film. That's the Woody Allen film. (laughs) One Night in Paris, Mike. Not to be confused with the uh, Joni Lar China sex tape, One Night in China. So you're you're welcome for everybody else. Adrian Brody's a weird actor. 
Yeah, I've never been a big fan of his. There's very few things that I can tolerate him in because I first saw him in Summer of Sam, and I still just have a visceral reaction thinking about that movie. But you're going to say you saw him on SNL, SNL with a, a Rasta wig, getting himself banned. He's one of the few people that's gotten banned from SNL because he just it went off script and just. It's my understanding that that was not off script, by the way, that they know about that and that his his ban is not actually a ban. But but they it's sort of gone into the public that, you know, because people complained about it. But your mind, your mind, your mind, your mind, your mind, Jamaica, mind, you know. You know, rush stuff out of, you know. You got the old family in the house, you know. A patois is a patois. Adrian Brody doing it. I mean, look, I always I always thought somebody made him do it because there's no way somebody who's an actor would do something that unself-aware. But Adrian Brody, I just have never understood what his deal is, I guess. Because I kind of find him to be overacting in this movie, like, a lot. He just has these, like, soliloquies is what it feels like. And he just starts pontificating is the is it's just it's a little much because it's every time he opens his mouth yeah but that's again that's a problem with the script because i think you might specifically be talking about the scene in the women's bathroom at the club where he's gone in and painted something and and now tells them his philosophy out of nowhere this this vignette shows up because of adrian brody i realized just how great an actor mickey rourke is because he continued non-flinching playing dead while Adrian Brody basically drooled all over him in that final sequence where he's just like, he's just like, oh, I love you. And he's just like kissing him and like his open mouth, just like dragging his open mouth up, down Mickey Rourke's face. Oh, my God. Mickey Rourke deserved an Oscar. I mean, that's what this this feels like. Mickey Rourke trying to get an Oscar. It's like this is a, a serious moment of the year. Mickey Rourke. No, I disagree with that. I, I think Mickey Wanted to be the fucked up person that he was and wanted to show the world exactly what he thought of them at that time. If 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 anything was coming out of this movie as far as a signal by Mickey Rourke, that's it wasn't give me an award. It was look at look at what you did to me. I have a very serious question about this movie. There's two times in here where Rourke's character is doing heroin and he sees this African-American guy in his dreams and his fantasies, his recollections, because we get some memories of prison. Of course, we get more Barry White music, that visual effect that you were talking about, which was very not good. Who the hell is that black guy? Because it's not Tupac. That's a very good question. <laughs> you, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. I just kept saying, who is this guy? Is he going to come back later? Like. I have no idea. I, I'm guessing that he took Tupac's eye. So I was like, oh, well, there's history between these guys. But then who's this other dude? By this point in the movie, I think all of us were going, had so many, I hope that's going to pay off, stacked up. And that some just started falling out, like, who's the guy in the hallucination? Because there's so many other bigger problems going on. You mean the guy dressed like Gilligan for whatever reason? <laughs> he's dressed in a red sweater and a bucket hat yeah meanwhile tupac looks like he's slick rick with the eye patch and the kangle and stuff i was just like lottie dottie we like to potty tupac in this like i love tupac's music but he he's just given short shrift in this movie just just say like the most horseshit stereotypical thug gangster things and i'll throw the n-word in there a couple times because Mickey Rourke saying the N-word, <laughs> I'm sorry, him saying the N-word never gets old. It feels so just, 
I'm not saying he enjoys it, but he makes it seem effortless. Let's put it that way. I don't level that at Mickey Rourke. He's so good at portraying these kinds of characters that I believe that like whatever rage he has, because that's the whole thing. It's a rage against these two people. I don't think it actually matters that Tupac's black. I think he just is saying that to Tupac to get a rise out of him. But every time he says it, he's just like that like grunty thing he does. He's calling the one guy Mexican or Latino slur, but then he ends up trying to have sex with the Latina woman. And I'm just like, okay, so he doesn't have necessarily something against Latinos. And I mean, she's just amazing. And then we get to find out that his dick doesn't work. So there's that. He's got a lot going on. He should be prison. That's what's the best place for him. And you got uh, all those shots of the L going through this whole movie all the time. And we almost end with the L with going up over and, and into the graveyard. But we've got the L everywhere. And there's one point where they're uh, doing the, the right before they shoot bullet. And the way that the L just keeps going by and keeps going by, keeps going by and the lights from it. It looks almost like a lightning storm going on. I was like, well, that's kind of a cool thing. But you've been showing us the L through the other 90 minutes of this movie so much that by now I'm just sick of it. Like all those establishing shots of a Golden Gate Park in the room. Just like, what the fuck are you doing? Just stop. Well, it's like, I mean, that scene in the club, I can't believe how long that scene takes for them to just get across from one side of the club to the other. Jesus. yeah, I just like the the weird the weird angles that this movie takes. It doesn't know what it wants to be and then when it kind of picks something, it has a hard time even executing on that genre like or subgenre within the kind of crime film world. I mean again, like this is such a weird mishmash of things. It almost doesn't necessarily just exist within crime films. And by the way, the only reason why I was focusing so much on those white kids earlier was just because I started this movie like three times and I kept turning it off. And so I'm very, I'm very familiar with the beginning of this movie. Why'd you keep turning it off? Because I didn't like it. I couldn't stand this fucking movie. I was just like, oh man, I can't take this. I mean, it's that, that bullshit dialogue that they're doing. Like you said, it's just sub basement, you know, oh, I want this guy. You bring him to me. I'm going to be here. You know, just like, what generic gangster speak 101 is what all of these guys are speaking. You, you know what happened to him? You know, you want to talk about this old man? Well, you know what? I, he took the rap from me. Well, you were still in your fucking diapers. This guy was doing a nine-year nine stint upstate at the prison. You know, you need to show him some fucking respect. I'm like, okay, who are you, Patty? Why are you in this movie? What happened with this? Nine years. Okay. How, what is your relationship like with Bullet since he took the fall for you? Um, who are you, Patty? Get up once or, and, and he has like one conversation and I only recognize because he called him Patty and I went, Mickey Rourke, you ought to know better. It's like another thing that the movie just adds and doesn't do anything with. And it's like, it's so content to add more things, but not to think about whether or not they work. And to your point about the dialogue, it's like in, it's like in like uh, like the Call of Duty video games with the like overly military dialogue. It's like guys, they don't always talk this way all the time. Four clicks, X filled. That it is like shut the fuck up. Like call, 
cool it. It's not this intense all the time. It just makes everybody seem like everything is super intense and it's super hype. It kind of, you know, I would say it feels like a John Woo movie, but it's not good enough to even be considered a better tomorrow. But it's trying to be that level of like melodrama. It really is attempting to be this like really sad. St- I mean, again, if you're not thinking about the, the subtext, like you mentioned Father Malone about Mickey Rourke taking to task his detractors. I mean, they have a moment where he says you could have been a contender. Come on, guys. And he's being compared to Marlon Brando all the time. He's punching a shitload of mirrors like he did in Angel Heart. Like, to your point, Father Malone, like, there is a lot of weird subtext shit in this movie. Like, obviously intentionally, because Mickey Rourke's name is on it. 100%. Yeah, I think that's that's the only good parts of the movie that I was able to mine out of it, honestly. Like, it was not a good time. It felt like, honestly, it felt like not so much a Tarantino ripoff, but a Nick Gomez ripoff. Like, this movie wants to be the laws of gravity or Mean Street. Or an Ed Burns movie. Oh, God. Yeah. The Brothers McMullen? Ooh. Oof. Like, that's what it just feels like. Like, but like eight heads in a duffel bag bad. Like, yeah, Little Odessa. I made a McCool's bad, yeah. Yeah. Shit, I forgot all about that one until you just said it. Jessica maintained that that was the worst movie ever made. I, I I always maintain I can't answer that question because the worst movie must be the movie I can't get through. But I think she was actually right. <laughs> Though this is a strong contender. I'd probably watch one Pools again if you had to make me watch one or one or the other of these. I just want to know where that headstone with Mickey Rourke's face on it is in 2023. If somebody kept that thing, because that that is the he looks he looks. Nothing like the character in the movie. He looks like Mickey Rourke from the early 80s. And it's like, because that's a real headstone that someone clearly made. And it, like I said, I hope to God it exists somewhere. But by the end of the movie, I was like, you know, like you mentioned already, Mike, either in prison or dead. Like, these are the only two places for this character. Like, and I, I'm not sad at all that he's dead. Like, it's like, it seems like a burden was lifted off of his shoulders in a way, frankly. Oh, yeah. That family has to be much better off. Now, if they can only get Lewis some help, they'll be okay. But Lewis, the voice of reason, he's like, they, he's a fucking terrible person. <laughs> he's, he's like, he's spot on the entire movie. He's like, this guy's a piece of shit. Again, just because he's the main character of the movie does not mean he's not a piece of shit because he, he's about as bad as his character in Barfly is. Like, there's very little redemptive qualities about this character. And it so should have been about Ruby. If it's, I mean, if it's, written by Bruce Rubenstein and it's based on his life. It's like we get a little bit, just a touch of him. We get that one scene where it really, again, doesn't make any sense where he's painting all this stuff and that's great, but they keep doing these dissolves and then they do this cross cutting with other things that are going on. And the other things that are going on are probably take, it feels like they're taking days to happen. Meanwhile, we're still stuck here at night with, uh, Ruby, aka Mazeltov, doing his painting, which is right out of his life. You've got knife through the hand and all that stuff. I'm like, okay, yeah, all pretty obvious stuff here, but the pacing of this thing is just ridiculous. Their pacing, it's just meandering left to right and front and center. Like, and now here's the Irish guys, and now here's Frankie eyelashes and the Italian crew. None of these characters will amount to much of anything, and none of them are going to pay off. But we will give them all enough rope just so you can think that they're going <laughs> to hang themselves. But they won't. 
do women find Frankie eyelashes attractive? You know, that's fucking makeup that he's wearing on his eyelashes, right? You know that, right? Jesus Christ. Again, it's like, who is this compelling to, is my question. Like, when they were reading these these lines of dialogue, doing their table read, which they undoubtedly did in this movie before they made it, like, somebody had to go, is this really compelling or is this just lazy? Lazier than lazy. There are parts of dialogue that are really good and there are parts of it that just seem like somebody was just like, give me gangster dialogue. ChatGPT, please write this movie for me. Like, there's no creativity. It's so generic. And I again, I'm not going to blame Mickey Rourke or Bruce Rubenstein because I don't know who did it. But somebody added that because there are parts of this movie that are well written and there are scenes that are pretty compelling. Is Mickey Rourke's skull so thick that that one black guy breaks his hand on Rourke's skull? Or how does he break his hand? He punched past Rourke and punched the ground. Oh, okay. Thank you. That was the only thing that made sense to me. I wasn't about to rewind, you know what I'm saying? I expected at one point in the movie that there's going to be a boxing match. You know, you got to figure it if, if that's where he is at this point, right? So it starts to happen and he pulls off his gear and I'm like, holy shit, here we go. And then it's just the most lackluster slugfest I've ever seen. Just like all the other action in the movie. It's just set up the camera and, you know, we'll cut it. and Yeah, throw some blood. And glass shatters. Like, I hate to keep picking on julian temple i mean he's produced some of my favorite things like juno temple but his action sense is just really terrible yeah he directed the music video for jump by van halen one of the classics yeah julian temple juno temple great thanks ted lasso fans we appreciate that and fans of killer joe (laughs) that's a great i that's a fucking have you ever covered that movie on your show mike speaking of juno that's a speaking of william friedkin even that's a, and Juno Temple, that's a good movie. You should check that out. And it was like one of those early Matthew McConaughey is back on the right track movies. I also get that one mixed up with, there was a Nick Cage movie. When, didn't he play a Joe as opposed to Peter Boyle? Joe, just called Joe. Yeah. Now, Killer Joe's great. It's a, that's a, that's a, one of those weird William Friedkin movies. But yeah, Julie, I wish I knew what Julian Temple's interest was in this project. Because, like, there doesn't seem to be anything that he brings to it. It seems like he more just gets in the way of... I don't. Again, I don't know if any but any specific director could have changed the fact that the, the script is so all over the place. But at least some of the more frenetic stuff wouldn't feel so flat. But yeah, I, I just think it's really poorly made for him. Like, I was shocked throughout the entire film to continue to remember that he made this fucking movie. It's really... I don't know what the appeal was, Chris, that that other than he liked to work, you know, hadn't made a movie. What really got me was the pacing, the use of all the dissolves that they were doing, which normally I would think that's a, you know, passage of time. But sometimes they're just using dissolves to dissolve. And sometimes it's during the heroin trips. Yeah. Okay. That's great. That's a good way to show that they're, you know, nodding off and that they're traveling in their having their heroin experiences all the while we've got Barry White on the soundtrack. That's great. But when they're just having like normal speeches, like rather than exchanges, I would say that there's so many speeches. You already talked about that, but it's just like, all right, now's the time for Mickey work to give us a little speech here. And it's like, yep, some of them are great. Like when he's talking to his mom and then other times just like, 
wow, I don't give a shit about anything you are saying right now. You are not some sort of philosopher con, but you would really like to think you are. If only they had written some philosopher type stuff for him other than just gay panic moments. Well, and then poor Lester. I mean, the guy's obviously gay. He's He's got a parasol. Who uses a parasol that's not gay? Come on. I, I always have a hard time with someone who mythologizes their upbringing. I mean, Spielberg did it last year with that the Fablemans movie, and that's what it feels like here. It's just, it's not as compelling because it's not as well done. But I'm sure Bruce Rubenstein, like, again, like, he's bringing his own feelings and, like, personal experiences to this. But, you yeah, you don't have to make everything so grandiose. Like, it's just a conversation. But... But it's the last conversation he's going to have with his mother and blah, 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 blah. It's like so Shakespearean in a way. It's like the, it's okay, but you don't necessarily succeed. And again, this is not necessarily the setting that would work, I would think. I mean, you could make it work, but it's, it's not, not this movie. I just. I mean, it's so on the nose that when he gets shot, he throws his arms out and falls like Jesus. And I'm like, really? You were Jesus this whole time. Okay. Yeah. He died so they could live. He did hit the ground real hard, Mickey Rourke, I noticed. I appreciate it. No stuntman, he. Lester gives Ruby some money, you know, get on out of here, go away. Like you said, we have him crying over his brother, but is that the last time that we see Ruby is after the funeral when Lester gives him the money? And then that's it, because then it's... Murder revenge moment. Yeah, it's it's Tank in his limo. It's it's Lewis sliding down the rope, slight cutting the guy's throat, repeating the paybacks and motherfucker line. And then I want to say there's like a shot with some slow motion and rain coming down. And in my notes, I was just like, wow, deep. It's so full of itself. And like again, like it's that mythologizing of your own life where you can't where it can't just be a conversation. It has to be this whole thing. Yeah. And they get it finale of the movie has ended so poorly like he's just tupac is just stumbling around out in the open with no bodyguards no nothing and yes yeah i guess you don't expect that ted levine's just gonna drop out of the fucking sky and kill you so fair but it does happen apparently because that's what happens to tupac and i rewound it like three times i was like wait that's the end of the movie like that's it like fuck like this is abrupt this is like an indian movie how abrupt it is Tupac walks up to unlock his clubs so he can go in. Was the rope already there? Because I might have looked away or something because he's standing there and I saw the rope and I went, why is he not wondering what that rope is? Is that a cable? Is that a power cable? What is that? <laughs> Come on, man. And you think he would be paying a little bit more attention, like maybe turn around and look look around while you're fumbling for your keys, considering everyone in your crew just got murdered? Again, you just don't expect a stealth ninja Ted Levine to drop from the sky with a 12-inch knife and cut your throat. So, I kind of wish that he had those night vision goggles from Silence On, right? <laughs> just to see the hand out there. Oh, that'd be great. Can I just mention again, like, Ted Levine, for whatever reason, and I mentioned this to y'all off recording, like, I've been seeing a lot of stuff with him in it, and he's just... Such a fun character actor. He makes that second Jurassic World movie mildly more entertaining by being just a magnificent dickhead. I mean, he just plays a dickhead so well. He's not someone I really associate with playing hero characters, given what he's what he is known for. So, well, isn't he the whole hero of Wild Wild West? General Bloodbath McGrath with the horn. 
God, that is the greatest part of, I mean, that, again, I have no problem with that movie. Fucking fight me on that. That movie has some really fun, weird stuff going on. I wish I could say the same about this. I just wanted to ask, is Tupac good in anything? I have not seen him in anything else. I liked him in Poetic Justice. I thought he was, that was kind of a nuanced performance in that movie. I don't think I've ever seen him in anything. And I kind of miss the whole Tupac train, I guess, because kind of quit listening to a lot of music around 94 and so when he started to get popular like i remember california likes to party but to me that was more of a dre song than a tupac song so yeah i'm I'm unfamiliar with his whole oeuvre i mostly know him as a dude that got shot yeah i that's the only thing i've seen him in like i said i list i've listened to a fair amount of tupac i like tupac a lot like west coast rap i i really like it but yeah, I mean, fine. They have Tupac in this movie, and he he's more well-spoken on the behind-the-scenes stuff than he is in the movie. Like, he's a really... I mean, obviously, he's a very well-spoken guy. I mean, he wrote he wrote a lot of stuff, and I mean, his music is really well-written. But it, yeah, it seems like a kind of waste turned Tupac into just kind of a thug. Like, he's he could have been an actual, like, menacing threat in the movie, and instead they just make him kind of a generic character, just like everything else. So you watch the scenes thing as well, right? Mm-hmm. You're saying about Tupac's team seeming like so thoughtful and well spoken, like during the interview. Same thing with Mickey Rourke during those interviews. I was like, oh, look at look at him go, look at him talking and expressing himself in a normal fashion. Where was this in the part of the character? Like, certainly Bullet could have been more than monosyllabic. They could have given us some little lifeline to grab onto, so we could like this character because the guy talking here in the behind the scenes thing is intriguing, whereas Bullet just seems like a drain. Well, that's the thing, like watch stuff where it's just Mickey Rourke and he seems like a, a interesting person, which is a great thing for an actor. I just can't understand the roles he picks because they're just, they're literally all over the place in a way that like we talk about people like Nick Cage and like other, I mean, I would even say like, like Bruce Willis even, like just taking all kinds of things and just the level of success is pretty wide scale, obviously. There's that one moment where Lester gets stabbed through the hand, and I said we see that later on in the artwork, but I don't think he really talks about it. You know what? What's funny is I've been around a lot of artists, so as soon as the knife went through his hand, that's all I was thinking. And then he screamed it, so then I thought, well, we're going to see this payoff, but again, we didn't pay off with Patty or anybody else here. So we do get the moment where we see him lashing the brush to his hand, using it like a... I don't know, like a glove or something like that. So is he like going to go to art school or something? Like, is he training for something? Like, so we don't know any of the reasons why he needs any money or getting out of uh, the, the neighborhood, pursue his love of art. But like, to your point, no, it never comes back. He never even mentions the fact like somebody could have said, how's the hand? Oh, feeling a lot better. Nothing. I understand with Saturday Night Fever, which I brought up earlier, With Saturday Night Fever, you got Tony and you got his brother, and his brother's supposed to become a priest, and it's a big deal when he says that he doesn't want to become a priest, and that affects Tony, and that affects the family and all this. You would think that that same kind of dynamic would be here, but almost like, oh, there's Bullet, and then there's Ruby, and Ruby wants to go to art school, but they don't have the money, and... So that becomes like this driving force and that affects the family and that affects Bullet, that affects the relationship. And, you know, Lewis is there kind of like, yeah, Bullet's a bad guy. Yeah, we got to take care of Ruby. And even 
bullet recognizes, you know, Ruby's a good kid. We got to do something to protect him, but there's no plan. There's no like, oh my gosh, Ruby needs $5,000 to go to art school. He's got to go to Juilliard or to wherever. Like there's nothing, there's no plan. There's nothing there. And again, it's like you're losing who I think is a better main character. And you've got, you know, like there could be moments where, oh, he's stealing all this jewelry, this really shitty looking costume type jewelry. He's stealing all this jewelry just to pay for Ruby to get out of here. Or, oh, look, at he got robbed at this drug den. There's that whole weird thing where somehow they were selling Bullet uh, a hot shot, but he didn't know it. And this other guy ends up stealing the heroin from him specifically from, and I don't even know, was that Patty and his boys or somebody else that comes in, steals the heroin from Bullet. Next thing we know, we see there's a dead junkie in this shooting gallery. And then we determine, or I determined, I don't know. I felt like a genius by being able to connect these dots. I was like, oh, that's the guy that stole from Bullet or somehow ended up with Bullet's heroin. And now he's dead. Somehow Tank specifically set up this heroin to go to this one guy knew that he was going to be at the shooting gallery on this day and buying this heroin and give him this package and whoops, it was stolen. Well, I guess he just, he gave it to him so that they would sell it to Mickey Rourke when he came there. But I don't understand the guy who stole it. That was a random event that occurred. This movie just needed like a second or third pass, like straight up. Honestly, like that's just all it is. Or like, don't add things. It honestly felt like maybe it was the added things, you know? That whole thing could have been a real story. You could have made that an interesting thing. Like, oh yeah, my my brother this heroin and he bought it from this dealer who hated him and the dealer poisoned it. But we don't get that. All those connecting dots are just gone. And it's like, that could have been an interesting thing. Like, oh wow, you you dodged the bullet. Ha ha. Because this guy stole this heroin from you. And that was really was a blessing in disguise. But I don't even think that like one point somebody tells Bullet that he was trying to give you a hot shot. And I don't think even like registers on his face. I'm like, what? You should have been like, whoa, I I dodged death again. In that same behind the scenes featurette, they're speaking to he's either one of the producers or the writer. I, I don't know. I don't remember. But he was informing us everything that I had not realized while watching the entirety of the movie. He's like, well, really, it's about the love of this brother. And like, we're talking about like what the movie actually should have laid out for us so that we understood somewhere along the way, instead of just dropping stuff at the very end or not even really giving it to us at all. Oh, guys, let's go ahead. I'm going to take a break and we'll be back with an interview with screenwriter Bruce Rubenstein right after these brief messages. Hello, everyone. This is Malcolm McDowell. I just want to say that uh, this is a request to listeners of the Projection Booth podcast to become patrons of the show via patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Projection Booth. That's pretty simple. I think you can do that. It's a great show, and Mike, he provides hours of great entertainment. 
So now it's time to give back, my little droogies. Settle down and take a listen and have a sip of the old Malocco. And then you'll be ready for a little of the old in-out, in-out, real horror show. Bye-bye. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. You went to school in New York, right? The, to Parsons? Yeah. I was born in Brooklyn, and my dad was a builder, so he used to move job sites every few years from, like, Brooklyn, and then we went to Queens, Laurelton. And then we settled in Long Island. I was about nine. I went to elementary, junior high, and high school in Long Island. And then my parents moved to Staten Island, and I got the fuck out. I moved to Manhattan with my friends, and I was there for about 10 years. But I've been in L.A. since 85. I go back often, but I have no family left. So I don't go back to New York as much because they're all gone. I have my art shows there twice a year I go. We go for business and stuff. I'll always be a hardcore New Yorker. How did you get interested in visual arts? I've been an artist my whole life, really. I was always a painter. Like when I was younger, that's what I majored in. Then I went to school. Here's a funny Mickey Wolf story, which will segue into Bullet. In 85, I was working as a window dresser in Soho, New York, at a store called La Rue de Ref, and very famous kind of crazy clothing boutique on Spring and Wooster. And my job was to, like, decorate the windows. I had a shop downstairs. I had an assistant. And, and we used to come up with these crazy concepts for the window to dress the windows. It was a great job, very creative, and I had a lot of freedom. This guy, Gil Cohn, owned the store, and he gave me a lot of freedom to build all my own stuff and design the windows, and I was there for about three years, and one day they were shooting Angel Heart, the movie Angel Heart, and all the trailers were parked in front of the store and all around Wooster and Green Street. They took up five blocks in the village, and... One of my childhood friends named Les was Mickey's trainer at the time. So Mickey had this tricked out motorhome, Airstream motorhome, that he had converted into a dressing room slash mini gym. Like, really, there's nothing like it. It's really incredible. One day, Les comes into my store, and he comes downstairs to my shop, and he goes, Hey, I'm working with Mickey Walk outside. And there's something wrong with his makeup mirror. It doesn't go up and down. Might be a good idea. Grab your tool bag and come on up and see if you can fix it. So I went upstairs and went into Mickey's trailer and he was in there. At the time, Mickey was like legendary. This was after nine and a half weeks and he was in his prime. A Brando, just a really like unique character. I don't know how old you are. Back then... It was like the thrill of a lifetime. I think I was 30, maybe, 29. And I started talking to Mickey, probably talking way too much, because I could see him, like, rolling his eyes out of the side of his head, saying, I wish this motherfucker would shut up. 
but I just kept babbling away. Time I was on a methadone program, and they call that shit disco juice. It just <laughs> it makes you just like babble. At the end of it all, we had some mutual friends from Long Island that Mickey knew. And then he asked me, I was there for two hours, I fixed the mirror, the mirror started going back up and down, and he was very impressed with my ill to fix shit. So he goes, let me ask you something, man, do you know your way around New York? I said, of course. What do you mean? I said, yeah, this is where I live. You know, you know, like the back of my hand. And he said, do you know well enough to drive me around? I said, I don't have a car. I don't need a car in the city. So he goes, no, I have a Mercedes. It's, part, it's a rental from in the movie. And I don't like the guy I have. It's all fucking teamsters. And the movie had just started. Angel, he goes, I can offer you 2500 a week. So back then, that was like eight grand a week. So I was like, 2500 a week? He's like, yeah, I walked into my, bar, to my workplace, and I walked right over to Gil Cohn, the owner. I said, Gil, fuck you. I quit. <laughs> so that was it. I started working with Mickey the next day which was insane. Like from jump, I'm driving this big Mercedes around Manhattan and he's, they'd be like a red light. Go up on the sidewalk, go around this motherfucker. I'm like, I'm like, Nick, you can't really do that. He goes, you want to work or not? So I go, I, you know, so I'm honking the horn and pulling up on sidewalks. And then he go, Oh, stop at this pizza place. And I'm like three deep from the curb. It's bumper to bumper traffic. And he's just fucking pull the car over. So I'm like literally stopped in the middle of second Avenue with cars cursing me out. And Mickey would go inside and sit around. He'd stay there and order pizza for 10 minutes and then come back with a pie and get in the back seat and start eating. And so that was the, but I kept up with the man. He loved me because I was as crazy as he asked, like anything he demanded of me, I fucking did it which is the way I've been with everything in my life. So I basically began working for him and worked. Then we went to New Orleans. We were in New York for five weeks. Then we shot the rest of it in New Orleans with, for five weeks. So if you can imagine, my first experience in the movie business was with Mickey Walk and Bobby De Niro. Because De Niro was the other star. Lisa Bonet and a lot of like great cast. It was a great movie. Angel Heart. So when it was all wrapped, we were in New Orleans and he goes, why don't you move out to LA? Like he said, I have a house and my wife lives there and I have my own apartment in Beverly Hills. You could stay at my house. So that was it, man. By then we were like super tight and I lived in, is in a condo in Forest Hills. So I went back to New York and I packed up all my shit and I was back in LA about 10 days later. And that's it. I was living at Mickey's house and I started working as his assistant. And then I, I worked on about six movies as his assistant. And then I started working my way up the ladder. He started a production company and I became the head of the production company with another girl named Jane Katchmer. And we had an office on, in Hollywood and I just, started learning the movie business inside out. So every movie that Mickey did, I was a, a co-producer on it. And then there's a guy from Long Island named Rob Weiss who did a movie called Amongst Friends. And 
Rob is like the hot thing in, in Hollywood. And all these guys like idolized Mickey. So he was a Long Island guy. So he contacted me and said, we got this movie to pitch Mickey. And now remember, I'm now with Mickey like six years. So I'm like running the show with an iron fist. So Rob comes into the office and he's pitching the, his movie idea. And the whole time, by this point in my career and having been in the business and worked on six movies, I'm saying to myself, my inner voice, I can write a fucking script. No, I have to listen to this crap. I can do this. Now, remember, it's funny because computers just came out. Like my friend Kizzy had the first Mac. And, and I had a big, uh, bad, one of those big uh, Motorola phones, the brick. That, that, that's what would, Mickey was like the first guy to have it. So I used to walk around London. I was in London with a brick. People like, what the fuck is that? I'd be walking up and down King's Road, like screaming into the phone. And it was never seen before. Like the concept of a portable phone was like space age. Yes. So anyway, Kizzy comes over to my house and he brings this Mac computer and he shows me how to, and I had a lot of experience reading screenplays because that's, that was part of my job. So he showed me how to use it. And I would take this spiral notebook to the office every day. And I started, I read a lot of scripts and I had some reference in front of me, like great scripts. I had all the scripts that Mickey was offered by, by Academy Award winning directors and actors and writers. So I was able to thumb through and just figure out the basics of structure. So I've always known my whole life that my fucking life story was insane. And I said, if I can just extrapolate and distill the important information and learn that through screenplay writing. So initially I started writing my story like longhand I was born here and this happened and my brother went to jail and he robbed the McDonald's and went to jail and became a junkie. Then I became a junkie and my other brother was in the Navy and he was a junkie. So I start writing the story and about four days later, I said to Mickey, I go to the office and go, Nick, I'm writing this, my the story of my life. I go, would you just sit and listen to me as let me read like three pages? Because Mickey had no patience, you know what I mean? But he loved my brother, Bullet. His name was Bart. And actually, Bart got out of prison. He was upstate New York. And he was like, he had done five years for armed robbery. Old, 200 pounds of muscles, covered in Betty Boop tattoos. And Mickey fell in love with him the minute he met him. He's, your brother's the toughest Jew I've ever met in my life. Why can't you be tough like him? I said, Mickey, one barn is enough for any family. So Mickey immediately hired my brother right out of prison to be his kind of bodyguard slash head crusher. Because Mickey always loved, for lack of a better word, violence. So, so it was the perfect pair. So we had a Rolls Royce. We had a black, Mickey had a black Rolls Royce convertible. And my brother used to drive, Mickey would sit in the back and my brother had the do-rag, and he would cover in tattoos. And back then, nobody had tattoos. It was like you were like a murderer. You looked like you were a convict if you had that many tattoos. It was unheard of. Now, every Jewish gangster slash accountant that I grew up with had sleeves. 
They're all like tatted out head to toe. It became like popular thing. But back then it was not. Anyway, I read these pages to Mickey and Mickey goes nuts. He goes, this is fucking great. Oh my God, I'm dying. This is hysterical. It's insane. He goes, I want to write it with you. Let's sit here and we'll do it together. Because Mickey knew my whole life story. And my brother started working with it. So we sat down for a month. And literally, and Mickey, Mickey's a workaholic. When he focuses on something, he's like really into it. And he's also an amazingly gifted. He's not focused like many of these kind of geniusy actors, but he's a real poet. Are you familiar with Bukowski? Yes. From Barfly and all that. So that's the style that Mickey wrote in. And I have a lot of his original poems that he wrote on scraps of napkins when we were flying all over the world. I saved everything. He was writing all this really cool poetry. And I have it all, man. I told him I got to wait till he dies, though. He agreed. You know, I said, are you still alive? I called him the other day. How the fuck are you still alive, man? It's mind-boggling. So he goes, I know. I keep going. So anyway, right, like a basically a first draft, which was 140 pages, which is way too long. As a screenplay needs to be about 90. Neither one of us knew what we were doing as far as like really telling structure. That's Mickey's problem. He's not a screenwriter, so he likes to really prattle on, and that doesn't work in a screenplay. But once you get somebody that knows what they're doing, they can carve away the bullshit and find the gold. So we had this law, and the name of Bullet was Mazeltuff, M-A-Z-E-L-T-U-F-F, Tuff being a play on Mazeltuff. And that was my, that's my character in movie. That's the character that Adrian Brody plays, is me, Ruby. And he signed his, the paintings Mazeltuff with a Jewish star. So that's how I was known in Brooklyn as Mazeltuff. Because I used to paint on the size, I used to do murals on the sides of buildings abandoned buildings so i had like a cool following and we just transposed all that into the screenplay so at the time nikki was with managed by bernie brillstein who was the biggest manager in the business who's bernie brillstein was like there was the company brillstein gray and they were the a-list premier manager in hollywood so mickey said i want to send this to bernie I think he's going to love it because he's a Jew. <laughs> so I go, okay, as opposed to a non-Jew not liking it. He goes, no, you got to be a Jew to get it. He goes, Who's that? whoever wrote a movie about Jew junkies. So anyway, he sends the script to Bernie. And about a week goes by and it's Sunday morning at nine o'clock and my phone rings and I pick it up and it's Bernie Brillstein. He talks like this. He's like, Bruce, is this fucking true? I go, which part? He goes, any of it. I said, let's say it's loosely based on my life, Bernie. And he starts laughing. He goes, this is fucking fantastic. We're getting this made. So now remember, this is the first thing I ever wrote. He goes, it's way too long, but I'm going to get a director on board immediately. And we will get this thing carved up. Now at the time, Mickey still had a lot of juice and you could raise enough money independently just on Mickey's name through foreign. 
back then it's not doesn't work this way anymore because streaming just killed this part of the business. But back in the day, you get a one star attached like a guy like Mickey, and you can pre-sell your territories in France and Germany and Italy, and you can raise six million dollars in two weeks, and then you keep a piece for domestic. Like the distributors don't want to give away domestic. So initially we went to Abel Ferrara who had just done King of New York and who we all knew. And Abel was a, just a incorrigible junkie, like, like a lot of us. So we bring Abel to the office to meet with, uh, Gary Harrington, who was the manager at Bernie Brillstein and Abel was nodding out. He had a cigarette. He was like chain smoke. And as he was talking, he would bend down, nod out, and burn his leg through his jeans with the cigarette because he was so high. And, and Jerry Arrington's looking at me going, yeah, Bruce, this is not going to work out. And I'm screaming at Abel. I'm going, Abel, you got, if you want to fucking be involved in this, you like, you got to get off the jump, man. You can't. Oh, I'm going to get clean, man. I'm going to get. So obviously he never did. And Jerry recommended a guy named Julian Temple, who's from London. And Julian was known for doing MTV videos like David Bowie videos. He wasn't really a film. He did Earth Girls Are Easy. That was his kind of only film credit. So he wrote, he loved the script. And he wrote like a 90 page, kind of a, thesis almost of how he envisioned the movie. You know what I mean? Now remember, this is an Oxford graduate and it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever read. But I kept saying producers, John Flock, the guy at Village Roadshow, who was going to put up the money. I said, I love the guy. He, Julian's an amazing, gifted, super genius guy. I go, but he's not like a Jew from New York. He doesn't understand the essence of the streets. And that's why we wanted Abel Ferrara because Abel's like a born in like the East village and, you know, hardcore and the kind of movies that Abel made was exactly the tone that we wanted, but he couldn't do it. He just was not in the physical shape. And then it, Julian spoke a great game. You know what I mean? He sat with me and Mickey, and he's a very hard guy not to, very amicable guy, and again, just a brilliant, super educated guy. So he was able to tell this beautiful, artistic story. And John Flock, who was the producer that was put on by Village Roadshow, who produced it, paid for it, they're out of Australia, he said, look, if you guys want to get this into production, we can be in pre-po in three weeks. But Julian's the guy. I don't want to start shopping it around. And we got to cast the other two major roles. So Mickey and I had seen Adrian Brody. He had one scene, a five-minute scene in the Steven Soderbergh film. I forgot the name of the project off the top of my head. And we both agreed there was something about Adrian Brody that was so special. Like, just Mickey loved him, and so did I. And I said to John Flynn, go, what about Adrian Brody? He goes, who? <laughs> so I said, this kid, he's going to blow up. I'm telling you, this guy has something really unique. So John watched the movie. He goes, yeah, he's good. But he has one fucking scene. I can't sell the movie on him. 
So we went to Larry Fishburne, played Tank. And Larry was very good friends with Mickey, but he was booked for like the next year. So Larry passed. Then we went to Wesley Snipes, who was also friends with Mickey, and Wesley passed. And Mickey goes, what about Tupac? <laughs> so I go, Tupac? You ain't fucking get Tupac. So Don Flock leaves. First thing, Mickey goes, call Adrian Brody. I just got his number from Bernie Brillstein. I call Adrian Brody, and I go, Adrian, my name is Bruce Rubenstein, and I'm sitting here with Mickey Walk. He goes, get the fuck out of here. Mickey goes, well, Adrian, it's me. I'm here. I'm right here. So he goes, oh, my, what can I help? I go, listen, I wrote a script about my life, and one of the lead characters is Ruby. It's based on me. And Mickey goes, Mickey grabs the phone out of my hand. He goes, hey, Adrian, it's Mick. Listen, you don't have to come in and read for this. I'm going to offer you right now. you got the role, 50K. You know, and I'm, Mickey had no authority whatsoever to make an offer. And nobody even talked about how much. <laughs> he just offers Adrian the role. And Adrian goes, done, I'm in. And Mickey puts the phone, gives me the phone. He goes, my manager is Joanne Colonna. He has her number. Please call her. And I'm just so thrilled about this. I can't believe it's like a dream. Now, remember, a year later, Adrian goes on to do The Pianist and wins an Academy Award. So I had uh, Adrian did a guest star when I did when I produced the Dice's show. I think I told you that. We talked about it. I was an EP on the Andrew Dice Clay show. And I brought Adrian and Mickey as guest stars. But anyway, Mickey was so famous then he could get anybody anybody anytime to call me i got mickey rock on the phone so we got tupac's home number and the same thing i called tupac i go hey pop it's my name's bruce rubenstein i'm sitting here with mickey rock he goes get the fuck out of here so i said yeah wrote a movie about my life and there's a character named tank and again mickey grabs the phone <laughs> i goes, tupac it's mickey and they just went, they spoke for an hour, dying, laughing and telling fucking jokes and screaming and yelling. I go, and I'm covering my hand, the phone, I'm going, do not make him an offer. Do not make him an offer. So he goes, well, I, don't know, I don't know, Bruce is screaming about an offer. I'm not going to make, he goes, you got the part. If you want it, you got it. I go, maybe he wants to read the script, Mickey. And Pac goes, I don't need to read the script. I'm in. And he also, this was like during Poetic Justice, Pac was blowing up. He was huge. He was becoming huge. So he hangs up. He calls John Flock. He goes, I just got the Tupac Shakur, and we locked in Brody. So John was not thrilled about Brody, but he goes, with Tupac and Mickey, we're done. I'll sell the shit out of this thing. So that was it, man. We started doing production meetings and my problem with Julian Temple, which started from jump, was I said, look, I understand you're a visualist, Adrian Julian, but I'm this is the first screenplay I've ever written. And, you know, I feel like it needs somebody, a director like yourself, to come in and weave this thing together because right now it's just reading as a bunch of vignettes. Because neither Mickey nor I at that time had the ability to really just carve it and find the voice. Who are we telling the story? Whose voice 
it's Ruby's story, but it's about three brothers. And I said, but there has to be like a through line. Like you've got to have an antagonist to carry the story. Otherwise, it's because Julian just doesn't know how to do that. He's Everything with him was about visual style. I know you've seen the movies, so that's my critique years later. And when the first rough cut was done, I knew we were in trouble. And I called John Flock and I go, look, John, I know how to fix this. You've got to create a voiceover track. It should be Adrian Brody. And you get Brody into the studio for two days and just weave this whole thing together because we have a lot of montages and you, it would be fantastic for Adrian to talk about his perspective. But they shot it down, said, fuck you, we're not doing that. But that was, so that was how the, so we were in production, maybe that I would say we were in Brooklyn shooting the movie three months after I wrote it and gave it to Bernie. Three months after I gave it to Bernie, we were literally in Brooklyn shooting. So that is a very rare thing indeed. And that was the power of Mickey back then. The behind the scenes of the making of Bullet is the better movie and should have been a documentary because it's almost too hard to believe the insanity of it all. And again, I don't mind. I won't mention names because I don't want to get killed. But at the time, Mickey was very friendly with John Gotti's crew and John. John loved Mickey, loved him, idolized him. They, because Mickey always played that kind of guy, that tough guy. And a lot of these guys wanted to be actors. So we went to Brooklyn. We were in Bensonhurst. We started shooting and... I'm introduced to a captain of that area who's part of the crew, Scotty's crew. He calls me to the side and he goes, yeah, Mr. told me to talk to you about doing some location scouts, location scouting. I got all the places lined up. Who do I talk to about getting paid? So I'm like, I don't want to say his name. I said, excuse me. I go, no disrespect. We have a line producer. This guy, John Flocky, 6'6", 280 pounds, a monster. And said, I can't do that because we have a location scout. So he, he goes, what did you just say to me? So I go, I was shitting. This guy was a captain, okay? And a very known, very scary guy. I grew up hearing his name and reading about him. And now here I am with him. And he's telling me how we're going to shoot the movie. And he's got another guy, Tommy, who I'll use his name because he's actually in the movie. And I love him. Tommy is a funny motherfucker. He plays the loan shark. There's a scene where Mickey, they rob the house and then they bring that jewelry. Okay. So the guy who's the fence is a made guy, a real guy. He talks like this. You know, he would come in the morning and goes, didn't I leave you on the highway? I love that line. I said, can I use that line in the movie? That's fucking great. He's, boom, hop in the trunk. I'll give you some ride. You know, I'm, 
Ah, yeah, I ain't getting in your fucking trunk, buddy. Oh, the entire fucking movie. The first week, obviously, got to think the way it shot. So the first scene, we were shooting at a titty bar. So the guy, the captain, calls me over again. He goes, let me ask you something. Do I look like a guy that would ever have a meeting at a titty bar? And I'm like, excuse me. No, dude, it's not real. It's a movie. It's just so, like... This is the 80s, 90s. It was 95. I go, everybody, you shoot a low-budget, like, street movie. Titty bars are very... He goes, nah, we're not shooting it there. We're going to shoot it at my friend Angelo's Italian restaurant. So, tell you guy, John, to bring me 25 in a bag, and we'll uh, we'll make the arrangements. <laughs> I'm telling you fucking story. I go to John's flock. Now, remember, 6'6", 280. And John's like a... a Ivy League fucking lawyer, but also a giant, scary guy. He's just got his lawyer, Bruce Cutler. They called him Cut Him Loose Bruce. And he talked like this. And he was a Cornell graduate. But I said to John, I go, John, listen, you're probably not going to like this. I need 25 in a bag in like 20s. And he goes, What? What the fuck are you talking about? So I go, I explained to him the situation and he's just his mouth is a gape. He goes, you've got to be fucking kidding me. I said, if we're going to get through this movie, John, and we want to shoot in Brooklyn, this is the way it's going to be. So next day I get a bag and I deliver it and we're shooting. A lot of it was made like that. Now, not to mention half of the movies about a bunch of junkies and half the actors are getting high. Everybody's disappearing during lunch, running on the train from Brooklyn to up to Harlem, and they're copping dope and coming back, and, and they're nodding out. On every, it's like method acting 101. The only one that didn't get high is Mickey. Mickey hated drugs. Everybody thinks he's a complete like drug addict. He fucking hated drugs. That was a stipulation that he made with me in the beginning because he knew my past. They said, you want to work for me, man? You got to get off that shit. You got to get clean. I don't want to be around it. I don't want to be around it. You'll have a drink now and then. Now and then. Occasionally, as I guess as the years went on, he started dipping and dabbing, but not then. So half, half the crew was high on dope, heroin. And then Pac started shooting two weeks later, and Pac showed up. He had his whole entourage. But they were just, like, smoking a lot of weed. They weren't, like, doing hardcore shit. They thought we were all, like, fucking the white devil, like, nuts. But I have to say this, and I've gone on record before. Tupac Shakur was the most professional, pleasant, cool guy I've ever had the pleasure of working with in the business. He came to set on time every day. Look, he had his whole crew there, and it was a little crazy, chaotic. But he knew all of his dialogue. He was polite to the director and to, to wardrobe, and he was just such a likable guy. And him and Nicky just became best friends. They really hit it off. When the movie wrapped, a week later, that's what, when Pac got shot. Not when he got killed, the first time he got shot in that recording studio where he blamed Biggie. That was a week after they wrapped. We wrapped. And Pac used to have all the jewelry. And we'd be in Coney Island, and I'd sta- I was standing on the corner with him. I go, Pac, you sure you want to wear all that shit out in public? And he goes, well, this is the fruits of my labor. No motherfucker's taking this. 
I go, I, I, he got a point. He got a point there. But he was just, he was just great, man. He was just a, a pleasure. Very professional and really just special guy. It's funny. We just had problems with everybody else, but never Tupac. He was really very, he's really stand up guy. And originally, the role of Tank was written for, a, it's a real guy from Farakoli that we grew up with. He wasn't my friend. He was a dope dealer in the projects in Redfern in, in Farakoli. He was 400 pounds. He used to wear a big white mink coat, and his hands were the size of, like, baseball gloves. They, they were all swollen from shooting dope into his hands. A lot of junkies. Like they all have veins collapsed, so they it's very hard to find a vein. So he used to shoot it in his hands. And there's a famous story everybody knew in Far Akwe. He his hands were so puffy and he carried a little Mossberg sort of shotgun under his mink coat. And he had a wire attached to the trigger and wrapped around his wrist because his fingers were too fat to fit inside the trigger. If he had to use the weapon, he would just pull the wire back on his wrist to pull the, to pull the trigger. But these are, this is one of those, like these stories that are told as a kid. And, and he became like legendary. But I, I knew I'd seen him. I, I used to go to the projects all the time and cop dope there with my brother. So Tank was a real guy. So when I wrote the script and we were thinking of the baddest motherfucker dope dealer in the projects, it was Tank. So the actual screenplay, that's how I described it. 400 pounds, swollen hands. He described the whole thing in the script of what he looked like. I said, which I said, it was almost like Barry White. If Barry White weighed 100 pounds more than he did with a white mink coat, that's what, and he wore a white mink hat that matched the coat. So it was like, like a gigantic pimp. And the scariest motherfucker on the planet, and known to be. So that's who I wrote. That was the character. So it was hard in the beginning to wrap my mind around Tupac because it was so physically different than this character that I envisioned in the movie. But again, it's Tupac. That's how movies get made. You have to give up your initial vision to get the quality sometimes. Because they had to hire a name in that role. And remember, and I tell this openly to anybody, okay, the movie is so fucking racist. Like, it's many years later, 30 years ago. I'm so fucking ashamed of half, and I'm being honest. A lot of language was used in that movie, that, and that was what was happening back then. Like, those little street movies were a dime a dozen. And it was all based in, like, just ignorance and racism. and But that's what growing up in New York was. A lot of my friends were black dudes. And we never even thought about it. We used to make fun of each other and call each other. And nobody, it wasn't like this woke bullshit. Like, nobody fucking cared. I was telling the story, which is funny. My best friend, Bernard, who was from the Lower East Side, and he used to come to my apartment when I lived on Long Island. And my dad was from Brooklyn. And... Bernard and me sitting in my room, and my dad, he was in the kitchen, and he would scream out. He goes, hey, is the colored kid staying for dinner? And I'm like, not anymore, Dad. <laughs> you know, 
I'm looking at Bernard, he's just shaking his head. But that's the way it was. We both started laughing that my father like had the ignorance and balls to scream that out. Like he didn't think there was anything wrong with it. That was just normal. So using the N word was like so common and but you didn't get killed for it back then on the street. A white guy goes, but like I would tell Bud, I go, tell that nigga to fucking back off, man. He wouldn't say, what'd you just say? But you know what I mean? It was like, it was a term. And in the movie, John Enos's character who plays Lester the Molester, these are all based in real people. Lester the Molester is a real guy. And Enos portrayed him just like a real one-dimensional, dumb Brooklyn fuck. Like super racist, not the sharpest knife in the draw kind of a guy. But that was the neighborhood. Those were the guys that I grew up with. A lot of really great, talented people, but there's a cliche. That's why these movies could never work today. You couldn't make Bullet today if you had Tom Cruise in the lead role. You can't get away with it anymore. It's too dark and that the woke thing will crush it. I think Tarantino's tirades, racist tirades, were kind of the last time you're going to see any of that shit. I don't think you would get a producer would be able to find the funding for exactly that reason. That kind of overt racism, nobody's going to touch it. Even though it, it exists, it still exists, obviously. But back then in the 90s, that was the thing, man. Everybody was making like $6 million, like really cool, get a, a good star attached, and you can make anything you wanted. Like the bad lieutenant, Abel Farr did the bad lieutenant. Mean Harvey Keitel, that was a fucking tour de force. That was the period. That was the period that we made Bullet. It was right then. That's why I saw that movie and I go, Mick, we got to get able to do Bullet. And it sucks in retrospect. And as much as I like Julian Temple, if Abel Ferrara had done Bullet, it would have been a fucking classic. It would have been legendary because Abel would have known exactly what to do with the characters instead of not understanding how to delve into the, the, the depth of the essence of the character and figure out what was driving him. It's there. Mickey plays my brother, Bart. He plays Bullet. And Mickey's so good. I mean, he really captured. And the guy who plays my other brother, Brian, Ted Levine, was phenomenal. Ted Levine is like fucking lit. That guy, is, he met with my real brother for two hours. And my brother is combat man. He was not alive anymore, but he was that guy in Bullet. And I think he feels the movie. And he should have had a bigger, better part. Because the dynamic between those two brothers, my favorite scene, which I'll always be very proud of, is the dinner scene. Ted Levine sitting in, his, in the room with his hand down his underwear watching Vietnam shit and if I was ever going to be proud of an achievement as a writer, I would just take that five-minute dinner scene, and that will live in infamy, man. It's genius. And I'm not just saying uh, it was written, because Mickey wrote a bunch of it, too. I just think of the dynamic between the family was what the movie should have been about more. This dysfunctional fucking insanity. But Ted, so Ted met with my brother two hours, walked out of the meeting, 
sat down with me and became my brother right in front of me to the point where it was frightening. And he was my brother. He literally, all the idiosyncrasies and the syntax, all that stuff, he had this such a brilliant actor. And I hired him from Silence of the Lambs. I'm like, that's the guy we got to get to play my to play Brian because Brian's that fucking crazy. You know what I mean? So it was a great mixture. Plot-wise is where it got really uh, spread out. And again, that was Julian not having the ability as a screenwriter director to break it all to, apart and put it back together. He was just shooting anything that was written in the script and trying to like do it with like cool camera angles and shoot it through a fishbowl. <laughs> Everything was about a, a video, you know. Um, and there was just no time, man. It was so hectic. But when you do a movie and you're on set three months after writing it, there was no time to really polish it properly. It just was just like it happened so fast. It was a lot of fun. When I think back on it, my, my brother was dying of AIDS, bought bullet at the time. And so that was really sad because it was the lie. He actually lived long enough to see the first cut. He was in a hospice on the west side of New York City on 11th Avenue. It was the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. And I've seen a lot of bad shit, but it was an AIDS ward. And it was just rows of mostly gay guys, you know, and junkies. Those were the only real people that were getting it and dying. So I can't say that either in today's world, but that's the reality of it. And when my brother got sick, he came to the set. And I hadn't seen him for a long time because I live in L.A. And then we flew to New York and set up production. And my brother came to the set in, 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 no, in Coney Island. And the door opened up and John Fluck goes, oh, your brother's here. And he walked and he weighed 95 pounds. And he was 200 pounds in muscle. And my heart sank. And Nikki loved him. Nikki, we were all, we were just heartbroken. He was there and he hung out. He was great. And he, he was like having a blast because it was him. It's his life. And before he died, he, he got to like participate in it all. So I guess brought him to almost what legendary status that Mickey Rourke was portraying my brother in a movie. So as bad as he was, that's pretty fucking cool. A lot of people can't say that. But he got to hang out with Tupac, and he idolized Tupac. So my brother was big into rap back then. It was exciting for him. And then, like, two weeks later, he became too ill to even be on the street anymore. So that's when he went into the hospice. So that was always, like, a dark cloud hanging over the set and myself and Mickey. And right after we wrapped, the hospice nurse called me and said, I don't think Bart's going to be around for another three weeks. And Nikki said, I do not want your brother dying in that fucking place. Let's go get him. So Nikki had this beautiful apartment on Central Park West, the 73rd. We, so Nikki hired a limo. This is on a podcast, whatever. This is an important story that people should know about Nikki Roth, man. There's a lot of people say a lot of bad shit about him. Like he's a crazy motherfucker for sure. 
But Mickey walked into that ward, picked my brother up in his arms, and he looked like an Auschwitz victim, carried him into the limo, brought him back to his apartment, hired two full-time hospice nurses, and converted his apartment. And when I say apartment, it was huge in New York. It was like 3,000 square feet. The big burning fireplace and the living room was gorgeous. And Mickey paid for the whole thing, brought a special bed in. And my brother passed away in Mickey's apartment three weeks after we brought him there with full-time care, 24 hours a day, round the clock. And Mickey had to leave. He had to go to Europe, but let us all stay in the apartment. And that's where my brother died. I'll never forget that connection with him. It actually makes me emotional because that that's what brothers do. Like, I'll always, I've been through hell and back with Mickey. Our relationship goes back 30 years, but we are family. He's like a brother to me. And what he did was unbelievable. It was an unbelievable gesture. And he stayed with my brother and held his hand and fed him through a tube and stroked his hair and stayed with him until he died two days after Mickey left. This was all at the end of making the movie. All these things, man, you look back on your life, 25, how many years ago those bullets? Yeah, it's like almost 30 years, 95. It seems like yesterday. There are days, if I think about it now, it seems like we were there yesterday. I had not seen the movie probably 10 years. I can't watch it because I have so much critique about it it's really hard for me i'm like oh, fuck why you <laughs> there's a lot of like amazing stuff in it i love a lot of it but i don't know you know my parents came to the set they were mortified because those two actors suzanne shepherd also just is my mother it's the same woman and the guy jerry grayson who played my dad was they were exact so my parents came to the family dinner scene to watch it they lived the in Long Island at the time, and they drove out, and my father goes, is that supposed to be me? I go, uh-huh. He goes, why is this guy drinking so much? I go, I don't know, Dad. <laughs> and there's that scene where my mother fills the vodka to the top. He goes, Hannah, whatever, cookie, bring me another double. But that was what it is. When people see themselves being portrayed, your parents, and I was, I, I had that scene with the syringe, where we use the, to, Bullet kept the his works in the talus bag, which is a, a Jewish little velvet bag where you put your talus, which is super religious. What a fucking disgraceful thing to do. But that's what, that was real. That's what we did. We were smart. We're like, I don't want to get popped if we're driving. I don't think a cop would ever have the balls to open up my fucking talus bag and look for heroin in a spoon inside the bag. My parents knew that we were, <laughs> fucking animals. They weren't surprised. Bart was in prison for five years. My uh, my younger brother, combat man, was in the Navy in, in the Bronx. He was at Fort Schuyler. And he was thrown out of the service for dealing two-and-alls to his commanding officer. So he got thrown out of the service for dealing drugs. The older brother went to prison. And I always... I, got, I was in rehabs and all that, but I somehow... I got busted once. This is a fucking great story, man. I got busted coming out of a hole in a wall on Avenue C and 8th Street out of a, a place where you buy dope. 
because Alphabet City was the place where you'd buy heroin back in the, and Coke, back in the 80s, 70s and 80s. He had all these white kids from Long Island and Jersey, like climbing through these fucking holes of these burnt out tenements. The fact, and I don't know how I'm alive. I don't know how I lived any of that shit and then sticking things in your arm that you don't know what the fuck it is. It's not like that anymore. Now it's my friend's daughter goes to FIT. She has a, she lives in a third story walk up brownstone. She pays 4,200 a month, which is crazy. It's crazy. Like the New York that I knew that I grew up in is not the same. All those fucking places have been gentrified. Even Stuy. Bed Stuy is now super high end. Bed Stuy was, you couldn't, a white kid couldn't go to Bed Stuy. You get killed. Now it's all super expensive, high end, like fancy part of Brooklyn. The only part that hasn't been cleaned up is Brownsville, but I'm sure they're going to push further down Bed Stuy into Brownsville and clean that as well. They just throw everybody out. They don't give a fuck. If the real estate is valuable, they don't care about people. So all that being said, that was, I'm bringing it all up because it's all part of the flavor of the film that was so prevalent back then. It's like the Sid and Nancy days. The 70s in Manhattan, the lower Manhattan was just fucking crazy with Basquiat and the birth of that whole movement with Keith Herring and and remember, I'm an artist. That's what I do for a living. Now, I dabbled. I was a writer. I was in the movie business. I was never an actor, but I leave that up to others. But, but to me, it's, it's the musicians and the, I was in the jazz world as well. And it's all the same. The movie business, the jazz, the artists, it's the same crazy motherfuckers just with different, different way of showing it. Anyway, Mickey's stories, you can tell as many. Mickey's great, man. He does. Again, Mickey has a, a great sense of humor about how fucked up he is and all the damage he's done to himself and everybody around him, even about his face. Uh, I, I was at Mickey's house maybe a year ago and he was like flipping through his iPad of like his, like from his image from nine and a half weeks that he would go to Angel Heart and it all started on. Wild Orchid, all the face stuff. He was a boxer, so he would get his face punched in all the time. Tommy Hearns broke his cheek, and that was like three weeks before we started Wild Orchid, that piece of shit that we shot in Brazil with his ex-wife, Carrie But three weeks before we started shooting, Mickey, Tommy Hearns broke Mickey's cheek, and it blew up like a fucking squirrel. So we showed up on set in Brazil, and Mickey's cheek was broken. And they're like, why the fuck wouldn't you tell us? But Mickey, yeah, I, feel it. I thought the swelling would have cut down by that. Oh, my God, it was crazy. So if you watch Wild Orchid, Mickey has, like, chipmunk cheeks in the whole movie because, because Hearns cracked both of his cheekbones, and they just swelled up. How close is Adrian Brody to you as far as the character that he's playing? A little bit. I love that guy. I can't say enough nice things about Adrian Brody. He is the consummate actor, just the nicest fucking guy in the world. Cool as hell. Just a pleasure, really. So to have a guy like that portray me was such an honor because he's just so fucking great. But 
we're not really like each other. He's not really like me at all. He doesn't have the edge. The character was portrayed a lot softer than I am in person, but he wanted to juxtapose that personality trait against Mickey, who was the tough guy. So Mickey was an ex-baseball player. My brother Bart was a basketball player. So Mickey just felt more comfortable as an actor using the best baseball thing as his downfall, you know, which is when he became bad, when his career collapsed as all these delusions or dreams of becoming, getting a scholarship and becoming a pro baseball player. That's real to Mickey. So Mickey used that as opposed to my brother who went to University of Cincinnati on a scholarship to play basketball. And my brother was five foot 11 white kid that could fucking tomahawk dunk. He held the ball like a grapefruit. He was fucking great. He was an amazing basketball player, but he had a lot of, he had a lot of fun, but he could never have made it as a pro. And he had so many head problems that he was just impossible to deal with. We just, took all that and turned it into drugs, into heroin, the drug that kills all the dreams. So I don't think Adrian, yeah, his character portrayed in Bullet was much softer. I was like much more crazy. And I would fight with people all the time and get fist fights. And I was a lot more, because that's the family. I grew up in a very violent family, three brothers, just fucking maniacs. So... Adrian would not have been able to portray that. So we took more of an artistic, and again, for lack of a better word, Bukowski-esque approach, more of a poet searching for himself. There are some great moments with Mickey and Adrian regarding the art, but not enough. I don't think, in, in retrospect, I don't think that part of the story was fleshed out enough. If I had to do it again, I would have really went back in and worked on that more. That's what I'm talking about. The point of view of whose story it was got a little muddled. But I liked, I really liked the way Adrian portrayed it. Again, because the most important thing is the dichotomy between the, the brothers. You're trying to create a story where one is soft and one is hard. Just got out of jail, and but he loves his brother and he wants him to succeed, which was that scene on the swing. Mickey has that scene on the swing with the mom. And the thing where, remember, he burns the piece of paper. He goes, you can really be something. So it's there. Like, Mickey felt like shit that he didn't want his brother to become like him. But I think all these got all the guys in, this, in reality were just so caught up in, in that world you know, that you can't, ever have a strong vision for your future and that's the dilemma of it being a junkie when you're a junkie it's like nodding out and laying on a raft on a river and dreaming about all the things you're going to be but you never get there so you'd rather just live in this fucking dream world because you snort dope or shoot dope whatever any of these opiates which all this new shit that was they didn't have uh, those kind of drugs back then the, that's what heroin does. Just you're very artistic and creative. You just nod off and you just fantasies and delusions. You have Walter Mitty syndrome. You just ever, you don't have to focus the drive. 
you just dream about it. So you just, usually that's why junkies die very young. Most of them, they don't, it's hard to find a successful junkie. They're either dead, they either die very young, or they get clean and sober and they've had that experience like me. I'm the only, I'm the only one in my family left. Everybody died and I have my own family. I have two beautiful daughters, my wife, and I reinvented myself. I was a dope fiend for 25 years and convinced myself that I couldn't paint and I couldn't be creative without being high. And that was the complete opposite. But it took me when I got married and my wife said, not spending a day with a guy that does drugs and I want to have a family. I want to have kids. So it's either me or the drugs. So I detoxed. It took me like a year and a half to get off the shit. And I did it. But I never went back, man. I've been clean 20 years. And I'm alive and I'm 67. And I'm, I have a solo, I have a solo exhibition in Taiwan in October. I have a solo exhibition in New York City in, in December. My art career fucking took off. Because I worked my ass off. I always have. So in retrospect, when you look at the movie, that fucking movie is a dead end for all those guys. It really didn't end well for anybody. So I guess that's really subliminal message. That was, I came from a really kind of shitty street environment. And in life, in reality, a lot of the crew and cast from Bullet died. Mickey's still going. And Ted Levine, I spoke to three years ago. He's doing great. And Brody, Adrian, a lot of the actors. But a lot of the B actors who were all friends of mine that I helped out and had the opportunity to help them because they were studying acting and they couldn't get a fucking job to save their lives. So I was putting a lot of my friends in a lot of the roles and about seven or eight of those guys died tragically. So really it's left behind a trail of death and <laughs> it's a dark fucking movie, man. I don't know. All right, Mike. Oh, thank you so much. This was so great talking with you. Ah, I enjoyed it. Now I don't have to go see my strength. <laughs> Good night, brother. All right, we are back and we are talking about Bullet and I was just so nonplussed by this movie that I didn't write a lot of notes for the second half. So I guess if we just have any more thoughts about this or mid-90s gangsterism, yeah, I still can't one night at McCool's. So uh, I'm not even going to talk about Destiny Turns on the radio. Oh, you can call me Johnny. I will say I, I will say I was slightly surprised that it wasn't a Miramax film. <laughs> it kind of feels that. Speaking of nineties movies, yeah. It has that vibe to it. I maybe it's not a Miramax movie because it's not as good as the Miramax movies that were coming out at the time. Like that's the thing. It's like it is like one of these just another movie made in the nineties. There was a Tim Roth and Chris Penn movie I covered last year. And it was like another one of these movies that came out in the nineties. It was like a crime detective movie. And 
yeah, I don't even remember its name. It was so not like so not anything. And this reminds me so much of those, except it's Mickey Rourke and Tupac. So it is kind of it stands out because of just the strange casting. It's like that Jay Leno and Pat Morita movie. Like in what universe are Mickey Rourke and Tupac Shakur sharing the same screen? We I tried to watch Collision Course recently and I actually had to turn it off. Me too. I thought, oh, be a hoot. And then I got like maybe 15 minutes and went, there, there's life is short. <laughs> Nerdery, a hoot has been had yet. <laughs> I mean, this was the same year that like sleepers came out. Remember, that is a gut punch and it kind of has some similar vibes to it as far as this is what happened to us and this is why we're so fucked up. But it just, Bullet does not carry any of that weight. Minus the characterization plot and everything else. And the self-awareness of the characters. Because in in something like Sleepers, those characters have some self-awareness as to why they're in those scenarios. And this, Bullet doesn't give a singular shit. He's like, I'm going to do some fucking heroin. I'm, I'm, I've been out of jail for 10 minutes. <laughs> Let's get high on H, y'all. And it's like, all right, cool, fine. But man, like where, if this is where the character's starting at the beginning of the movie, like we, we're just essentially vertical cliff face, wily coyote ourselves. Like that's, it's just, and they never like, well, let's try to get back up on the other side. It's like, nah, just let him, just let him die. Cause this character is so beyond flawed. There's nothing. And that, and like, it's, it is, this should have been Adrian Brody's movie and Mickey Rourke should have been like the Christian Bale character in that Mark Wahlberg, speaking of Wahlberg brothers, that the fighter, it's like Christian Bale's not the main character of that movie, but he's a, he's a presence throughout the film. And that's how you do that. You don't have to have the imminently flawed character be the main character. Cause unless they're really exciting and worth talking about they just it's kind of like oh my god it's just like a fucking downward spiral the whole movie well and it's like when he gets out of prison i never hear if he has a plan which i understand like okay he's a loser he's a deadbeat all this kind of stuff but like you would think he would get out and be like you know what i'm gonna go straight i'm gonna have i'm gonna do everything right or you know what i'm gonna take back my property i'm going to take back the streets and i'm going to become the baddest ass of of whatever block i'm on something just something instead of yeah i'm gonna shoot heroin rob people and try to have sex with latina girls and not get a hard on oh and which is exactly what this this movie is all about so yeah you know if that's your thing oh boy then bullet be for you if you like meandering plots that go nowhere and characters stumbling around and being monosyllabic and not being engaging in any way, shape, or form, this needed not a second or third draft. This needed a ground-up page one rewrite. Yeah, now that's the only way you would make Adrian Brody the main character. It's indicative of everything you were say- we've been saying about 90s sort of crime movies, particularly when it comes to independent cinema at the time. It's like horror movies forever are the cheapest thing to do. You can just crank them on out. All you need is a girl and a gun, right? So we got a glut of them in the 90s. And this is this is an incredibly poor showing from everyone involved. I really wish I hadn't watched it. <laughs> I, I will ask the question. So the poster says you only get one shot at revenge. And the only character that actually takes revenge on another character is the Tupac character taking revenge on the Mickey Rourke character who stabbed him in the eye in prison. 
So is this Tupac's story then about how he kills Mickey Rourke and gets what he wants ultimately and pays the price? But I mean, again, when you set out for revenge, dig two graves type thing, I mean, that's, again, what a circular way to get there. I think that's a very viable possibility that this is actually the movie about Tupac. The bullet we're describing is the one he pumps into his enemy at the end. Like, what was their beef? We don't even get that. He stabbed him in the eye in prison. That's it. That's all. We don't know the motivation. Was it that black guy? Did he have something to do with it? <laughs> it was Gilligan. The skipper wasn't there. I I have I don't know. They linger on that guy for so long. It's like, guys, forget that there was like a scene here. You maybe forgot to like put in the movie. I I am so glad that you guys are as equally confused because I thought for sure I'd come on here, I'd start talking, and you guys would both be like, Oh, you idiot. That's so and so and yeah, they had beef from way back, and that's the guy who initially gave bullet heroin and da da. And like, I'm glad and I'm not glad because I really was hoping that you guys had the answer for this one. You were confused. I was expecting a Stephen Steve McQueen movie. A bullet. Are you gonna catch this guy? That's what I think of when I think of bullet. Is that fucking? That was speaking of Steve McQueen. I I guess that's the question for uh, a follow up question for Bruce Rubenstein is who was that guy in the red shirt? We were so perplexed. Also, you know, don't listen to the episode. Yeah, it's going to be tough for me to share this one. I'll tell you that. Oh. Yeah, I, I mean, again, like, look, you, ultimately, you have a movie in Hollywood. It got made, and it's your story about, it's the story you wanted to tell. And if it's not, then your name is on the script with Mickey Rourke, so I don't know what to say. I always think of that yeah, Mistress, the Robert Wool film, where... Uh, and a filmmaker trying to get there. And at one point, he he's talking to Eli Wallach, I believe, who says, like, yeah, it doesn't matter if it's a piece of shit. You're in the club. And so when I when I see a movie like this and I go, like, well, that's not very good. I go, it's more than you did, motherfucker. Like, they got a movie made. So on that level, ah. And it's a New Line movie. Like, it's a movie from, a, like, a big studio that's still around. Like, again, like, if for all of its failures, it's still a major motion picture that came out in the Hollywood system. So... This is also the same year, ironically, that the Adam Sandler, Damon Wayans joint Bulletproof came out. So as I look up Bullet, I see Bulletproof all the time. So almost makes me want to watch that movie again, because I know I saw it at the theater. I've never seen that film. It is basically a subpar Midnight Run ripoff. Well, I love Midnight Run, so I'll give that a shot. It has to be better than Bullet. The thing that I want to watch walking away from this is the 1997 Gridlocked with uh, Tim Roth and Tupac Shakur, another bizarre pairing of actors. And it's a comedy, apparently, a comedy crime film. I still want to go back and see more work. I want to go back and, and finally see Johnny Handsome. And I think I saw his version of Desperate Hours. Yeah, I've enjoyed a lot of the stuff that I've seen. I still haven't seen the Pope of Greenwich Village. His early days, because we talked about Fade to Black years ago, Body Heat, when we talked about Double Indemnity. I mean, I, Diner. If you haven't seen Diner, Chris, you owe it to yourself. I have not. Oh, it's a good one. Yeah, if you want to see what the big deal is about Mickey Work, he's, he's the most charming he will ever be on screen in that movie. It might be his career highlight. Wow. Which is really sad since it's so early in his career. But when you talk about 
all that wasted potential, that's the movie I immediately think of. Look at how good you were in Diner. Look at how good you were even in something bad like Year of the Dragon. So much potential. He, they're all, there's so many bad movies, but found myself watching them a lot in my youth because he's so good. Well, to me, he's so good. It just, see, it just seems like now that I've seen some of his movies, it's like there start to be some things that are box checks in his movies, like small animals. And, you know, in this movie, there's small animals. There's like a cat or something, right? And then, yeah, it's like... Uh-huh. There's the cat and the rat, yeah. Yeah, and then, yeah, and the rat. And then in Once Upon a Time in Mexico, there's the dog. And it's like, man, like, Mickey Rourke has these, like, things that always show up. And it's like, hey, you're an idiosyncratic guy, clearly cool good profession to be in all right kevin feige i'll do your movie but uh i'm gonna need a cockatoo you want a cock or two i want my bird a bird you want a bird i want my bird i can get your bird i can get you 10 birds i want my bird well okay nothing's impossible i could are we talking about uh, is this a bird back in russia well, his character's name is Whiplash, and you could be remiss for thinking he has something to do with BDSM. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. That's right, we'll be back with a selection of Czech films for Czechtember. We are doing a whole murder-themed month, kicking it off with Murder Czech Style. Until then, I want to thank my co-hosts, Father Malone and Chris. So, Chris, what is keeping you busy these days, sir? Lots of Mickey Rourke. Mickey Rourke was what we covered in August for our Patreon month, so we've been talking a lot of Mickey Rourke. So, Mickey Rourke movies on the Culture Cast. Father Malone and I did an episode on Angel Heart, and then we did an episode on the Marlboro Man and Harley Davidson, which I keep saying wrong unintentionally, not on purpose. Two times in a row now I've said it wrong. You know what I'm talking about, so... Uh, but yeah, that's what I'm doing over at weirdingwaymedia.com. I'm covering Mickey Rourke movies on the culture cast and then other things on other shows, which can be found at weirdingwaymedia.com. And I believe, Father Malone, you also produce some shows for weirdingwaymedia.com. Can you talk a little bit about those, sir? I can. I co-host a show called Noise Junkies. It's a music podcast I do with Mondo Heather's Heather Drain and HP. I also do a show called Midnight Viewing, the Night Gallery podcast with a couple of degenerates. Those can all be found at weirdingwaymedia.com. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows that I work on. They are all available at weirdingwaymedia.com, just like these five gentlemen shows as well. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. 
every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. Okay, party people in the house, you're about to witness something you've never witnessed before. Yes, it's the original human beatbox, Dougie Fresh, and his partner, the Grand Wizard, MC, Ricky, D, D, and that's me in the place to be. And we're going to show you how we do it for 85 Kick It Live, all right? Because um, I got a funny feeling um, you're all sick of all these crab rappers biting their rhymes because um, they're backstabbers. But uh, when it comes to me and my friend Doug Fresh here, there is no competition because we are the best, yeah. Finesse and press, which we prove. And y'all will realize that we are the move. So listen close um, so you all don't miss as we go a little something like this. Hit it! Oh, yeah. You know what? Lottie, Lottie. Lottie, Lottie. 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 You know what? Your peep this. Lottie, Lottie. We like to party. We don't cause trouble. We don't bother nobody. We're just some men that's on the mic. And when we rock up on the mic, we rock the mic. For all of y'all, keeping y'all in health. Just to see you smile and enjoy yourself. Cause it's cool when you cause a cozy condition and, uh, that we create. Cause that's our mission. So listen uh, to what we say. Because this type of shit, it happens every day. I woke up around 10 o'clock in the morning. I gave myself a stretcher. A morning yawning. Went to the bathroom to wash up. Had some soap on my face and my hands up on a cup. I said, um, Mara Mara on the wall. Who is the top choice? Of them all, there was a rumble dumble. Five minutes it lasted. The mirror said, You know how you conceited bastard. But that's true, that's why we never have no beef. So then I washed off the soap and brushed the gold teeth. You saw I love Ole cause my skin gets pale. And then I got the files for my fingernails. Due to the night and on my behalf, I put the bubbles in the tub so I could have a bubble bath. Clean, dry was my body and here I threw on my brand new Gucci underwear. For all the girls I might take home, I got the Johnson's baby powder and the polo cologne. Fresh dress like a million bucks, threw on the ballet shoes and the fly green socks stepped out my house stopped short oh no i went back in i forgot my kango and then i dilly Dally. i ran through her i bumped into my old girl Sally. from the Dally. this is a girl plays hard to get so i said what's wrong because she looked upset she said um it's all because of you i'm feeling sad and blue you went away and now my life is filled with rainy days and i love you so how much you'll never know because you took your love away from me <laughs> now what was i to do just crying over me and she was feeling blue i said um don't cry dry your eye here comes your mother with those two little guys her mean mother stepped up said to me hi look sally in the face and decked her in the eye punched her in the belly and stepped on her feet slammed the child on the hard concrete the bitch was strong the kids was gone Something was wrong. I said, what is going on? I tried to break it up. I said, stop it, leave her. She said, if I can't have you, she can't either. She grabbed me closely by my socks. 
So I broke the hell out like I had the chicken pox, but she gave chase. She caught up quick. She put her finger in the face of MC Rick. She said, why don't you give me a plane so we can go cruising in my OJ? And if you give me that okay, I give you all my love today. Ricky, 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 can't you see? Somehow your words just hypnotize me. And I just love your jazzy ways. Oh, MC Rick, my love is here to stay. And on and on and on she kept on The bitch been around before my mother's born I said cheer up, I gave her a kiss I said you can't have me, I'm too young for you miss She says no you're not, then she starts crying I says I'm 19, she said stop lying I says I am, go ask my mother And with your wrinkle pussy, I can't be a lover to the tick tock you don't stop to the tick tick and you don't quit hit it